Hey guys, uh, welcome to this week's Prestige. Quickly before we get going, I wanted to quickly say we are aware that my audio this week is completely screwed. Um, you can hear echoes, you can hear reverbs. I can only apologise. Feel free to skip this week if you don't want to listen to that. We're back next week. Uh, but just to give you a heads up that we are, my, my sound is not great. If you're okay with that guys, uh, we'll continue on. If not, we'll see you next week. Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films, filmmaking and film theory. In each programme we'll focus on a particular movie, we're going to review it, talk about it, discuss some of our thoughts on it and some of the ideas and themes that it throws up to us. And like we always do, we're going to end with our recommendations for films to watch following this week's film. They might be loosely based thematically on what we've been watching, or the actors, or the director, or whatever we feel like. Uh, Before that, who are we and why should you care? My colleague here is Sam Knowles, Dr Sam Knowles. He is a writer and lecturer, writing and lecturing about pop culture, about literary culture, about post-colonialism, about books, about stories, and all the ideas around them. My name is Rob Maythorn. I've been the last 10 years working in the film industry, and these days I talk about films here, I review films online, and I watch films for fun. So this week, Rob, it was, as a part of our Christmas season, your turn. It was, and I... There was some discussion on Twitter beforehand as whether this film actually classes a Christmas film, but I maintain it does. It is the 1999 film Go from director John, Doug, Doug, Doug Lyman, uh, infamous um, for a load of other films. His name you'll know, Edge of Tomorrow, of which I'm a, a huge fan. He did all the Bourne films. Uh, he's done lots of things over the years. He did Jumper, he did Miss Mrs. Smith, he did The O.C. for a little bit. So he's he's been around in swingers prior to this, and uh, I'm sure we may touch about how the influence of those two films together. It tells essentially the story of one night in LA of three characters who uh, sort of through their own stories. So sort of you've got uh, Ronna, Simon, and Zach and Adam, and it tells their intended stories over this evening. Two of the stories are very interconnected. One is very kind of almost satellite to it, has influences, has effects, but certainly isn't related until like, the large kind of ending, the dominant between the, the stories. It's set at the time of release, so back in 1999, and I'm sure in time we all cover how incredibly 90s this film feels. It stars Katie Holmes, it stars Sarah Poli, uh, Desmond Askew. Loads of people who you'd recognise, Timothy Oliphant, Jay Marr, William Fitcher, loads of people go, oh yeah, I know him, I know him, I know him. So it's very much of that era, it's very much of the of the zeitgeist of that era, um, but it does, it has these three stories that run parallel to each other uh, throughout this uh, this evening. It is obviously at Christmas time, as we mentioned, and there's various sort of elements of the Christmas sort of uh, culture with... Christmas hats and lights and snow and all that kind of Christmasiness 
Um, and we will kind of talk a bit, I'd like to talk a bit about how, whether it is a Christmas film. Um, having discussed Christmas films last week and what makes a Christmas film. Um, but I thought it'd be interesting to, having gone from something as, as wholesome and as family oriented as, as Home Alone to a Christmas film very much at the end, other end of the scale. We have drug abuse, we have violence, we have guns, we have threesomes, we have strippers, we have all manner of, of underworldness. Sam. Now, I believe you probably saw this film when it was released back in the in the late 90s, but your thoughts? Yes. Um, right. So before I go any further, if, if I mean, I presume people listening to this podcast are expecting spoilers and won't listen to this if they're not prepared for that, but um, I'm going to let go some spoilers pretty early in this because... Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important to say because the first 30 minutes of this film um, I did not really like um, and actually I watched it in two parts I watched it um, before I went to work and then when I got home um, and the first 30 minutes or so I thought was quite pedestrian and there were a couple of jump cuts that felt a bit like a music video but in general, I thought, well, I know where this is going. It's a, it's a particularly 90s film. Um, and then about 34 minutes in, and I know this because it was just as I was turning the TV off to go to work, um, there is a hit and run. And it is out of the blue, completely out of nowhere. And mm. I thought, wow, I really wish I didn't have to go to work because actually this is now worth watching. This is yes. a, this is brilliant here right here, um, so that's that, that's my first impression. My so my first half an hour impression of it was all right. I know what this is, and then half an hour, just over half an hour in, I thought, whoa, like what has just happened? Um, and I suppose this episode with um, Ron being hit by the car it kind of epitomizes what I like about this film. Um, and what I grew to like about this film after that is I suppose this willingness to switch narrative direction suddenly mm. so um, you kind of get it with delaying Todd's intervention because you think that he's immediately going to spot that he's been stitched up and he he doesn't rumble it and Ronna gets away with switching ecstasy for aspirin and then she she goes goes around selling it and you think, well, hang on, what just happened there? And it plays with your expectations of what's gonna happen. And that's something you get all the way through through the film and that's what I really liked about this film. I think that I I I, I would actually entirely agree. I I picked this film thinking, you know what, I loved that fifteen years ago. Um, and it's one of those that you know. Well, let's, let's see, let's see what it's still like now. And I'm with you. Like, at a certain point, you go into it thinking, you know what? I've seen this film hundred thousand times. I've seen it in Swingers. I've seen it in Clerks. I've seen it in Love Actually. I've seen this film so many times. Mm. And I went into it the first probably the first half an hour being like, yeah, this is fun. You know, it's nice to see people making jokes. It's a fun film, but not overly sort of invested. Um, but it was at that point when. Almost everything goes sideways, shall we say? As yes. you say, with, with, with yeah. a hit and run, it's just something like that wasn't the film I thought it was. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that that's a, a strength of it. I think also that for me, I think that it's 
a lot of the actors in it put in a damn fine performance. Mm. I think that uh, Katie Holmes is great as her character. Yes, underused. Underused, and I I mean, I think very much that she kind of, she was brought in, because at this point she'd been on Dawson's Creek as as Joey, and this film, I I don't know where it sits in her filmography, but it feels very much like it was kind of, this is her first the baking of that mould, stepping away from the character of of Dawson's Creek, um, and that she kind of. Uh, yeah, I'm just looking at the, the timeline now. So yeah, she was she was deep in Dawson's Creek when when this was made. So it does feel like a sort of a, a rejection of that role, and a bit of sort of not smart casting, but interesting casting to kind of subvert that role. I think mm. that Timothy Oliphant was great. And very watchable as as Todd Gaines the the uh, the drug dealer. Yeah. I think that Scott Wolf and Jay Moore as Adam and Zach, the two uh, sitcom stars, were very good. I wasn't massively keen on Simon Baines as, as uh, of um, Desmond Askew as Simon, the uh, the middle no. story. No. Um, it was. I mean, he was uh, the four of the four guys who go to go to Vegas in the middle story. I thought. Tay Diggs was very good. Yes, I um, did think. I did think actually. You mentioned Love Actually as a place that we've seen this before, and I thought, and it is an interesting comparison with the um, what's his face who goes to America. Yes, in Love Actually. It was that that story with the strippers. What's his name? Chris somebody. Chris Marshall. Chris, yes. Yeah. Um, and this was an interesting subversion of that because, well, it's really, it doesn't work as a subversion because it came before, but it's that idea of going to a, a fun place and pulling women and mm. having fun and then it spectacularly falls apart for Simon. Yes. Um, I thought I thought that was interesting about the narrative. So I, I, actually, I actually enjoyed that narrative, even though, as you said, his acting is not great. No, I mean, I don't think for me it felt like that was the that was the one of the three stories that felt a little bit out of place with the other two. Because mm. um, it does feel in the same way I would say the same thing about Love Actually that Chris Marshall's story is the one that seems out of place in the rest of that film. Uh, but it felt to me a bit out of place. But I liked Ted Diggs. I liked Bradley Meyer. I liked. I enjoyed that story. Like it, it was that kind of fun, a hangover but not terrible kind of story. Mm. Yeah. But on the whole, I felt it built built towards a really good ending. I think there are some great moments of comedy in there. I think uh, the scenes with William Fitcher as the FBI or the, the cop and his wife in their home were just... I was actually in tears with some of them laugh at some points. I thought they yes. were brilliantly weird and strange and all that. And I, I genuinely, I liked it. And I think that for me, just, just to sort of go a little bit more in depth with it, it almost, I like the fact that it sets up its stall straight away. Mm. The opening monologue by Kate Holmes about Christmas and how it's getting, like, opening presents and not getting what you thought you were getting, all that kind of thing, is why she loves Christmas. And this film felt very much like that, that so many of the stories, whilst I've seen the idea of this film before, didn't go where I thought they were going to go. Mm. Rana, yes, yeah. I was, I was just think, thinking about actually that the opening of that scene with 
the four bros in the car on the way to Vegas with mm. the story that's that's not Tay that is Tay Diggs's and it's appropriated by someone else. There was a really interesting that that was a really interesting commentary on who owns a story, who has the right to tell a story, and then mm. it gets into cultural appropriation and race and Tay Diggs has this thing about about race and he, he continues with this thing about race when when he gets to Vegas when he gets treated as as a bathroom boy as a as a car attendant mm. um, so I thought through throughout this you get sort of little monologues like that like that that sequence in the car or like you said this opening um, monologue of of Katie Holmes is right at the beginning that provide an interesting commentary on what the film is actually doing Mm, I, I I agree. I think it's 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 worth noting this film's place in sort of filmic movements, and obviously, late nineties we are in probably the, the the just post the peak of the American indie scene. So we've had more rats, we've had clerks, we've had swingers, we've had these kind of films, and this kind of Gen X film movement, for want of a better title, is very much about pop culture references about language about monologues about stories these aren't visually outstanding films so while this film does have some amazing visuals in it it isn't a visually creative film in the way it is a verbally creative film you know there's a whole scene early on when three people literally sit down and play a game about dead celebrities where you have to mm. say there's a about the, with the and it really noted to me that at no point do they explain the rules of that game they just no. sit down and play it. No. They just sit down and play it. And the implication is that as an, as an audience, you will get it and go with it. And there's so many bits in this film where at no point does it stop to explain what's going on. Because it knows its audience of being the same people who are in the film who are making the film. And it just you, you just you accept these are the rules and you just going to go with it. Mm. There, there was something there with the... Um... Sort of comparison with the first scene in Reservoir Dogs, with that sort of discussion in the diner about like a virgin. When you have, that's just how people behave. It's something we did, we talked about right at the start of this this series, of this podcast, is how interesting it is when filmmakers make films about real life and about conversations you actually have. And this this game with the dead celebrities is a game that you would conceivably have with friends and you wouldn't need to stop halfway through and explain the rules for the sake of an audience. So yes, I did I, I did really appreciate that about this film. I think there's also, with it, it's certainly Burpin' My Clerks, the idea of, of, of the obsession with the, with the blue-collar worker. The, 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 the main... Two famous stories are people who work at a supermarket on the tills. Mm. Yeah, um, and even the, the last story where they're both actors, them being actors has nothing to do with what happens. Their mm. their their role is important, and there is this, this obsession in this film movement or this interest in this film movement in this kind of um, kind of life. So the idea that it's not about people who are changing the world, not about people who are saving the world, not about heroes. It's about the day-to-day, the people who, 90% of us, who work in a shop or work in an office or just have a job that we just go to and go home to from, you know. Like there's, there's 
there's this obsession with that. And I think the film it sits very squarely in in the midst of that kind of filmic movement. Mm. Yes, and and you have that the the scene with Mammy right at the end when you know what he's been through and he's been he's taken taken too many drugs and been left alone outside overnight and then Ronna's been hit by a car and she can barely walk and then um Claire's gone through this this thing with Todd and you know what's happened to these three characters but he doesn't care about that he's just saying well what we're going to do for New Year's then because what's important is not what's happened it's what's going to happen next and that's something else with with this I suppose this idea of of a film about blue collar workers is that you don't care about what's happened before. You just care about the experience that's coming to you. Yes, I mean, with the characters here, there's, there's I, I as, as a viewer have no interest in their prehistory. I mean, I have no interest in like their ongoing history. Like, I'm like what, what, what did Ronna do next? Because it's mm. not about them. It's about the crazy nights, about the, the experience. Uh, because they aren't going to change the world. They aren't going to be suddenly president next year. They're just going to get another job and have another out. And that's kind of that kind of 90s hedonism, uh, especially around the millennium. And at some point I would like to talk about millennium films and how the millennium affected filmmaking. But it, it, there is that kind of hedonistic attitude. I mean, Sam and I were 17, 18 at this point in our time, weren't we? And there well, certainly was... You, you were, you are old. Yes, yes. <laughs> Sam was 12. Um <laughs> Sam's still 12 uh, and you do there was a feeling of a, of a hedonistic period when I mean, you look at the music of Britpop of TFI Friday of that kind of thing it was a, it was a hedonistic time and this film is in that in that wheelhouse certainly mm. but as we're in December um, yes. and we are talking Christmas yes Sam where do you think this fell in, in the uh, in the Christmas film Spectrum. Oh, right. I wonder what you can do. I thought you can do one of your uh, moments when you spring something on me, like a, I don't know, a surprise Christmas quiz or something. Tempting. Um, I do like a quiz. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Don't we? Um, I, I know how how you feel about this film, the Christmasiness of this film. I personally didn't feel that it was a very Christmassy film. Um, was a was a particularly wasn't necessarily a Christmas film. Um, I think, and I think part of that is these sort of well, what I was just talking about really the the sort of the throwaway nature of these of these people's lives. And this is not me being dismissive of them. This is just how they live their lives. Um, and I suppose it's it's in that um, line when Manny says, "So what are we doing for New Year's?" Like. That's that's why I don't think this is a particularly Christmassy film is because I don't think it matters to them that it's Christmas because they're just focused on the next hedonistic celebration. Yeah, I think I mean just to uh, be a bit film filmic at times. There's a a scene very early first time we meet uh, Timothy Oliphant's uh, Todd Gaines Berliner, in which a nameless and faceless woman walks in, kisses him, and shoves a Christmas hat on his head. For which he plays no part, and the film feels a bit like that. They're going, "It's Christmas," and yeah. have thrown this kind of, I don't know, the visual stylings of Christmas at it, and it has some lovely visuals. Him naked from the west up in a Christmas hat is a great visual. Their car full of Christmas lights is a great visual. 
but it doesn't it isn't Christmassy in the way that like Home Alone Christmas doesn't play a part in the plot mm. it's just the it's just the, the, the timing of the film in the same way you might say a winter film or a summer film or a film at Thanksgiving but this film just, it just feels it, it's at Christmas that being so said it gone. that being said the as I raised it last week my idea around Christmas film what makes Christmas film and what doesn't it's about growth the idea that the Christmas season promotes personal growth mm-hmm and I, I would posit that Katie Holmes' character goes through that growth. Okay. At the start of the film, she's very unsure of herself. She, she talks about moving to the city and not being able to do with her life. And she comes off very much like, not the party pooper, but the shy one, the fearful one, the one scared of the city, the scared of this life. Mm. And at the end, she has this scene in which she bumps into Todd Gaines again in a a cafe and sit down with him and talk to him in a much more animated and friendly and open and not aggressive way but like much more proactive which leads to the scene when people from Vegas and they all meet up and she screams at all the um, guys in the strip bar yeah that, she, that that moment of screaming was brilliant I'm just just as you were saying that I was thinking about this growth of Katie Holmes from someone who wouldn't say boo to a goose to someone who is the dominant presence in a room like that. Sorry, carry on. No, no, I, I, I agree. I agree. I think that's so her her growth through the Christmas period is what I would say tips it in my mind into being a Christmas film rather than just being a film about Christmas. No. That being said, I think that the filmmakers have particularly gone out of their way to try and subvert the Christmas ideal. So they may be making a Christmas film, but they are still trying to sort of subvert it and deconstruct it in their own way as well Mm. by rejecting some of the traditional tropes of Christmas film, even as to him with the idea of one. Yes. So... Uh, But I, I do appreciate the debatable nature of its Christmasness. Yeah, so there's, I mean, what word can we find? It's not It's not really anti-Christmas, because that implies being against Christmas. Is it like a pseudo-Christmas film? Um, <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying, I, 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 you're right, I'm trying to think of it. It's kind of Christmas-adjacent. Yeah, right, yeah. For, for want of a better word. Um, yes. But it's, it's kind of Christmas-light. In mm. the, it's about Christmas, it has some Christmas things, but it isn't. Like if people are listening to their you know, top Christmas film, it's not. No one's thinking of it as Christmas film until you have to pick Christmas films you've never heard of. Um, in the same way, as I discussed last week, *Lethal Weapon* and *Die Hard*, one is considered a Christmas film and one isn't. Yes. Despite yes. the fact that one, especially um, *Lethal Weapon*, has much more stylings around Christmas. Yeah. Than *Die Hard* does, but one feels more Christmassy. Right. I've got a word. And when when you said said adjacent, the prefix para means adjacent, as in paragraph next to writing. So we are going to go for this as a para Christmas film. I'm I'm, I'm down with that here. We hereby commission and and sanctify that word a para yeah. Christmas film. But Good. I do I, uh, I I I will say I I would say that's right. I think it's kind of it's linked to Christmas and it's more integral than some films just happen at Christmas. Mm. but it isn't driven by Christmas in the same way films like Jingle All The Way 
Santa Claus the movie are driven by Christmas. Mm. Yeah. Right then, well, um, what what are your recommendations for this week based well, on this film? <laughs> Just prior to this recording, uh, my <laughs> wife and I were having a very large row about this, this uh, recommendations. Which, um, I, which I caught the end of. Um, so are you going to go for that? I'm, I'm going to mention her recommendation. <laughs> I feel I should. Um, this, her, her recommendation was the film Christian Slater called Pump Up the Volume. And this film is... I'm, I'm looking at the VHS now. I'm not sure. From, I think it's but from back in 19, 1990. Um, it's probably the early birth of the Gen X films. Um, it's, it, it is a good film. It's a fun film. It's kind of in the same box as Footloose or that kind of, you know, one person turns up and changes the town. Uh, but Chris Slater is is charismatic. It's a good film. But it isn't one of my official recommendations. So I will, I will just park that on for the moment. Sorry, right. Sarah. <laughs> my first recommendation, I'm, I've got one, both are well-known, I think. Uh, both, I think, are pretty obvious. My first recommendation is the 1950 film Rashomon by Akira Kurosawa. This film tells the story of a, of a crime in, in, in Japan and is told from three different perspectives by three different people and they all witness the crime and the after effects. Mm. And this is one of the first big films to really kind of run with that whole one story, three, three clear points of view. Mm. It's probably one of the best um, but I wanted to kind of just say that if you haven't seen it, um, Akira Kurosawa is my favourite director. He does amazing work, and this is one of his best. And its fingerprints are on so many films that follow after it, that follow this kind of different different points of view on the same story. What was the name? Rashomon. R A S H O M O N. It's uh, generally it's got eight point three out of ten on IMDb. Um, it's uh, it's well rec- well recommended, is what I can say. Okay, okay. Um, but it's it, it's it's very good. My second recommendation is from 1999, uh, so same same time as as Go, and in many ways I think it's probably a, a superior film to Go. But I'm biased on that, and it is Human Traffic, right. which essentially is the British version of the same thing. Mm. It's about four or five friends going out in Cardiff for a night on the town. It's about drug culture. It's about club culture. It's about music culture. It's got John Sims in in the lead role. Uh, but once again, it's full of people who from the UK scene. It's got Danny Dyer in his what very very rare great role. He's good in this film. Uh, this, how good he is in this film, boys him a lot of goodwill um, but you've recognised a lot of the, the cast it's funny it's certainly more visually inventive than Go um, if you can check out the original version there's a remixed version of the original one I think the original one's stronger myself um, but if you haven't seen it working that it is for me it is the definitive film of the 90s youth culture right Sam uh, my first recommendation is is the thematic one, and it would staying in this um, late nineties wheelhouse, um, and it's a film that I remember fondly, not 
not an amazing film, but it has kind of a narrative that goes places you're not expecting to in much the same way that Go does. Um, it's kind of slicker and bigger budget than Go, I suppose. Um, anyway, I would recommend going back and seeing A Life Less Ordinary from a couple of years before, mm-hmm. um, because it's it's not as not as bad as you might think. Um, it's my <laughs> cautious recommendation for this week. I, I really like <laughs> it, so I'll, I'll back it. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and my second recommendation is um, it, from listening to this podcast. People may think I I mention Christopher Nolan films to wine for a bar. Um, and I do, but um, <laughs> there is a reason for me mentioning this one, um, and it's that one of the standout performers I thought of Go, and we've talked about her quite a bit in this, is Katie Holmes. Um, and I suppose well, we know her for Dawson's Creek and then being ma- married to an insane religious nutjob, and then we don't really know anything else about her. Um, and you kind of forget that she's a brilliant actor. Um, and Batman Begins is, I think, a brilliant film um, in terms of her performance. So there we go. There are my recommendations this week. At some point, we all, I'm sure we'll all sit down and watch the Batman things and you can try and convince me I'm wrong about them. I don't think I'm going to. <laughs> I'm, I, you know me, I'm always open to new ideas. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Um, right next so, next week. Next week, sorry. yes. Um, well, I'm going firmly back into um, uh, family orientated Christmas films, um, and sort of this this something traditional at Christmas time. Um, and I think we're going to um, close our Christmas season with "It's a Wonderful Life." Okay, um, which actually I. Um, hadn't seen until a few years ago. It was a uh, you mentioned the Goonies last week as something that you hadn't seen until relatively late on, and this was a similar gap in my film knowledge. It was something that people always said, "Oh yeah, it's always on at Christmas. Everyone watches it at Christmas. You've all you've all seen it. You've seen it a hundred times before." Um, I never had done until quite recently, um, but I thought it'd be an interesting one to look at. Certainly, certainly, excellent. Well, guys, we shall see you back next week. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Podcast, or wherever you listen to us. The more reviews we get, the more ears we get into, the more faces we can see. So please give us reviews if you like us. Um, and if you'd like to let us know, you can find us both on Twitter at Prestige Podcast. You can find me at Life underscore Academic. Or you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. And we'll see you guys back here next week. Bye. The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr. Arg.